I think it's important that I say I'm a farmer because there aren't that many farmers and I want to open it up as a possibility to people like you can work land um, and it's good to work land and to care for land. Um, but I'm also uh, I'm also thinking a lot about uh, the privilege of working the land and why that matters to me, why I want to work the land and how, you know, not everybody wants to work land, but there are a lot of people. Welcome to the third season of the Hardwood Podcast, a program dedicated to sharing ideas, thoughts, and voices of respected professionals in environmental studies that care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They all have lived and work experiences that add to their outlook and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we here on the Hardwood Podcast are committed to sharing the voices of these individuals, as well as making space for others to ponder our dialogues. Greetings, everyone. Know what I don't know what time of day it is, wherever you are as you're listening to this, but this is Dr. Thomas Richard Easley, host of the Hartwood Podcast, aka Hip Hop Forester, aka Richard Ease, coming to you from the Yale School of the Environment. I'm the Assistant Dean of Community and Inclusion there, and it is my honor to be here with you today. Now, today, we have the honor of having Dr. Tessa Desmond, Dr. Tessa Desmond, okay? who earned her PhD in literary studies, uh, as well as a master's degree in African-American studies from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So I think that's a, that's a very fortunate institution there. She arrived at Princeton in 2017. I'm gonna say have most recently served as administrative director and lecturer for a committee of ethnicity migration rights at Harvard University, where she helped to develop academic pathways, curriculum and event series and ethnic studies. Everyone, you just heard that and I know you did, I'm talking to a heavy person, all right? So this is gonna be a very interesting interview today, a very fun one too, because I've been looking forward to having this because Dr. Desmond has uh, been accommodating for us with her schedule and time. So we're gonna uh, please have Dr. Desmond have as much time as she'd like. And I wanna welcome you to the Hardwood Podcast, Dr. Tessa Desmond, welcome. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for having me, I'm excited to be here. I appreciate you so much. Um, hope that you, we're looking at each other, even though you know this is audio. But uh, I, you know, hope that you're safe and well and healthy. You know, wherever you are. Um, and uh, like I said, I thank you for your time. And uh, and you know, being a your, you know, look, I also come from the hip hop world. So at times, you know, we when we're talking to rappers, we say they like that's that's a spitter spitter. That's a rapper's rapper. Looking at your background. You're an academics academic, you know, like you are bringing it, okay? You are coming in here strong and doing something, but I think doing something that's powerful, but I think somewhat, you know, somewhat different, you know, uh, you know, in the sense of, you know, the field that you studied and how you've been able to take that and impact, I mean, going from Harvard and then coming to Princeton and doing, and doing work and continuing to do the work. And um, and then also, you know, I, um, just to go ahead and a, a shameless plug, you know, you were the professor of our engineer who we miss right now, the Dean Damien. Everyone is not here at the moment because uh, school is number one priority for us on Hartwood and he's in class right now. OK, so so I have the fortune of being with Tessa alone. So here we go. All right. So, Doc, the first thing I want to do is because you're at least to, to me and I know in many places and you're an associate professor, you know, tenure professor. So you're a decorated faculty member. But I'm curious, you know, could you share how you became a faculty member? You know, like speaking on your journey to how you got to Dr. Tessa Bates. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so I like to say that I am when I when I introduce myself, I say that I'm a farmer and a scholar. 
Um, because I am, I'm a farmer and a scholar. So in addition to, um, my work on campus, and I do want to just caveat that I, um, I'm not on the, I'm not on the professorial faculty track. Okay. I'm a research scholar, which is a little bit different. Um, and it's, and it's, and it really is a perfect position for me. It's still a tenure pathway, um, through, uh, through facultyhood at Princeton, um, yes but my title is associate research scholar and lecturer. Um, and so I like to say that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a farmer and a scholar. Um, and I'll say a little bit about how I got here. So I'm a first generation college student raised by a single mom who grew up in a trailer park in rural Minnesota. Um, my, uh, my, the town that I grew up in is called New Ulm, Minnesota named after Ulm, Germany. Um, and when I was a child there, it was 98% German. So not just 98% white, but we're talking about a small town in Minnesota that's 98% ethnically German. Um, and so uh, that was, I, I grew up there until I was 12 years old. And then um, when I was 12, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Hmm. And it might as well, I might as well moved to the moon. It was so different, different. right? I mm -hmm. literally, when I was growing up in Minnesota, I remember going school clothes shopping in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, yes. and being at the mall and seeing the first African-American person I had ever seen in real life. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I had watched, you know, like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was on TV and the Cosby show was on TV when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I watched a lot of TV being raised by a single mom who was working three jobs. Um, but, uh, so this is what my experience was like as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I moved to Phoenix, Arizona and Phoenix, Arizona is as different as you can possibly imagine from oh, yeah. New Ulm, Minnesota. It oh, is yeah. hot. It is <laughs> densely populated. Um, and it is diverse. Um, mm -hmm. And so my high school, you know, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't paying attention to the demographic um, makeup of my school necessarily. But if I were to go back and guess, it was not a majority white high school. Um, and my friendship group was um, racially and ethnically diverse. Um, and that just felt like those were the people who I got along with at school. You know, um, my high school sweetheart, his parents were immigrants from Liberia. Um, uh, and, and it just, it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a thing. Although mm -hmm. looking back, it was totally different from growing up in New Ulm, right? Mm -hmm. but when you're mm -hmm. a kid, I, like one of the reasons that I um, uh, work in literature and work with students in literary studies is because we can all only just live one path in our life, right? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have a choice about being born in a mostly white community and then moving to Phoenix, Arizona. Like that's just my path. But literature gives us the chance to walk in other people's shoes and, and have a sense of you know, different sets of experiences, gain a little bit, um, gain new frameworks that aren't part of our experience. So that's, so that's a little, um, uh, that's a little bit of, of a preview about my academic trajectory. But I, I think, you know, I grew up split between Minnesota and Arizona. Um, although I wasn't trying to make sense of this or reconcile these two very different spots in the world that I was a part of until I got to college. Um, and then I got to college um, and I was doing work in women's studies and I was doing work in English literature. Um, uh, 
I was training to be a high school teacher, a high school English teacher, because I had been good at high school and I liked English when I was in high school. I didn't have a very wide world of possibilities um, because my mom hadn't gone to college. Um, I went to college kind of simply just because like that's what my friends were doing. Um, uh, but they, you know, we went to community college. I, I started at community college um, and then I transferred to a university. I was just kind of doing what my friends were doing from this like, you know, marginally decent, almost suburban high school in Phoenix, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of following the flow without mm -hmm. a lot of intentionality. And so I, when I was asked what I wanted to study at college, I thought, well, I was good at high school and I was good at English. So I'll do a degree in English. Mm -hmm. um, but I took a women's studies class on a whim and the English program at Arizona State where I transferred for my junior and senior year and the women's studies programs we're very focused on intersectionality and the intersectionality between gender, race, and class. And this was all any of my professors were talking about when I was in college um, in the uh, it, it, right around 2000. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in my women's studies class and my professor saying in lecture, um, analyzing the phrase to throw like a girl. Mm. And okay. she said, did anyone teach you how to throw? And, you know, she's saying this to, uh, you know, a lecture hall full of women. And mm -hmm. I thought, no, nobody. I mean, I was raised by a single mom. Like nobody taught me how to throw a ball. And she thought, and then she said, you know, what, what were you taught to do? And I thought, oh, well, I was taught to ride a bike. I was taught to play tennis, but nobody mm -hmm. taught me how to throw a ball. And she says, think about the things that you were taught to do. Um, and are you good at those things? And I thought, yes, I can, I can ride a bike and I can play tennis, but I'm not good at throwing a ball. I'm not good at playing catch. And all of a sudden socialization became real for me and I understood mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I just did this deep dive and I was in my classes and I was learning about gender, race and class. And I grew up without a lot of money. Um, raised by a single mom. And so I had these experiences from which to understand socio differences and stratification around socioeconomic class and what it meant gotcha. to be poor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in the disadvantaged group. And I had a sense of what it meant to be raised by a single mom as a girl in this world and what it meant to be in the disadvantaged group around gender. I understood that. And um, so having that entree, I was like, yes, I understand who I am, where I came from and how I came to be who I am better because I understand the lens of gender and class. Mm -hmm. Race was a different, was a different category for me, right? I wasn't in the disadvantaged group around race. I'm white. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, thought this is an area I need to do more work in. I need to understand this category and I can't understand it in the way that I'm understanding class and gender. I don't make sense of it this way. Um, and so I just immersed myself in any and all classes that I could think about different racial histories. Um, and, you know, there was a great organization at Arizona State, the Intergroup Relations Center that was doing co-curricular work with students around power and privilege issues. Okay. And so I was able to do retreats there. And um, I finished undergrad with a much better sense of who I was. 
Um, but not necessarily understanding who I was in relation to other people who were important in my life, particularly the people of color who I had gone to high school with. Okay. Um, and wanting to understand racial dynamics and how they walked in the world that was, and how uh, I walked in the world in a way that was different from them. I remember reading The Bluest Eye in one of my literature classes, um, Toni Morrison's novel. Mm -hmm. And I was home for the weekend and I read it straight through. I got up, went in the kitchen, got a glass of water, went back in my room and sat down and read it straight through a second time because I was so taken with that novel. Pakola, the main character, is a little black girl who um, who's really suffering um, vis-a-vis images of little white girls in her world and in particular Shirley Temple. <clears throat> and I don't claim that I was as cute as Shirley Temple when I was a little girl, but I was blonde haired and blue eyed. And I read that book and I thought, I'm the Shirley Temple. Mm-hmm. And Shirley Temple is a haunting figure for Pacola. Pacola mm-hmm. envies Shirley Temple. Pacola resents Shirley Temple. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm the Shirley Temple in this book. And I need to understand a little bit more about what what just being a Shirley Temple in this world means for other people who I'm, who I'm in close community with. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I decided to do my master's degree. I applied um, mostly to English programs, but there was one English program at the University of Madison that had this reciprocal or this really cool relationship with the Afro-American studies program at the university. Um, and I could do my master's in Afro-AM and then do a PhD in English. And I thought I wanted to do a PhD in English. Um, the guy that I was dating through college um, was going to graduate school. And I had decided I didn't want to be a secondary education teacher anymore. And I said, well, I don't know what I would do if I don't go to school to teach high school. And he said, well, you'd go to school to teach college. And I was like, you know, like just blew my mind. <laughs> I had, I'd never heard anything about graduate school, except my sister had graduated from college and continued to take classes. And everyone in my family thought like, what is that girl doing? She doesn't want to grow up and get a job. She just wants to be a student forever. So that was all I knew. I didn't know what she was doing was called graduate school, but I knew it was a weird thing. Um, but my, my college boyfriend who I ended up marrying said, why don't we go to graduate school and you can be a professor? And I thought, well, I think going going to more school sounds fun, but I don't know if I'm ever going to be a professor. Like that sounds something that's, that's way out of my league. Mm. Um, but the program at Madison sounded really compelling because I knew I, I knew I didn't know everything I wanted to know about my own ra- racialization and the history of race in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important you know, I have this degree in African-American studies on my CV. And I think it's really important for me to say, like, I went to do that degree to learn about, to learn as much about myself as I did about other people. It wasn't about doing this degree to learn about otherness per se, but just to know, just to understand that there's a whole history that is interwoven and wrapped up with the history of my own family and the country that I live in that I was not privy to that I did not know enough about. And so I went to do that master's degree for my, you know, in the way that people go to graduate school to do their own self-development. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's always 
represented on the page. That's it's always transparent to people. I agree. Um, and so I'm so I chose to go to the University of Wisconsin Madison and do that really cool program and spent two years immersed in the um, what we know about the history of um, the civil rights movement um, uh, of multi ethnic movements uh, analyses of power and justice black feminist thought um, uh, I didn't do a lot of work in the in the courses on literature in the master's program, because I knew I was going to do that in my PhD. So I did a gotcha. lot of sort of social, historical, cultural context work in that master's degree. There were six mm -hmm. of us in the program, six women. I was the only white person. And even mm -hmm. that in its own, ex like that experientially was, was really important for me. Um, and I have lots of stories I could tell about that, but, um, uh, but I think that was a really important time of growth. And then I moved into the PhD program where I started working broadly on multi-ethnic literature and using literature in the classroom as a way to build capacity for thinking about racial justice and empathy across race. Mm. Um, I, so I think the whole time that I was training to be a scholar, um, I was thinking about what does this work do in the world how does it help us, myself and my students, to become a better person? How can we use literature to open up windows into each other's worlds and build empathy and understanding? And then think about where we each fit in that. Um, and so that's the kind of work that I that I was doing through graduate school. A lot of um, community engaged work, um, thinking about. Uh, applied learning outside of the academy has always been really important to me. I think that that comes from being um, the, from being a first gen student and the, the, the daughter of a single mother um, that I never thought that doing work in the academy for, you know, ideas for ideas sake was enough for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been a compelling part of, of the development of me as a, as a, as a faculty member and a teacher. Um, and so then I moved to um, Harvard where I was able to do some really important work in building out essentially what's their ethnic studies program, this program yeah. on ethnicity, migration and rights. Uh -huh. um, and while I was there, I was teaching um, in the program and I was the only faculty member. Well, I wasn't a, I was an administrator there. Um, I was the only lecturer, the only person teaching in the program who was fully positioned in the program. Everyone else was. Um, teaching in history and working on EMR. And most of them I'm had, sure. they focused on Asian American studies or Latino studies, um, but there wasn't anyone teaching centrally in the committee who was bringing together fields of ethnic studies to put them in conversation with each other. So mm -hmm. I developed, my first course was this multi-ethnic American short stories course. It's the bread and butter of what I was trained to teach. Um, and it was a great course. Um, but this is an interdisciplinary program and I needed to think about courses that would bring together the fields of ethnic studies that looked at it from different vantage points. I couldn't just put out three literature classes um, for this interdisciplinary program. Mm -hmm. And so I had been working on food stuff um, in my personal life um, mm -hmm. for a long time, caring what I ate, thinking about local foods, thinking about food justice, um, but I hadn't been doing it as an academic. And I had the chance at Harvard then to start teaching a course in food studies um, through an academic lens. And I always tell my students, I only teach courses that I want to take. 
And so I just put it out there. And so then I said, um, I taught a course called the EMR of food, how ethnicity, migration, and rights are parts of the food we eat. And I told the students, I was like, I, you know, I put together a reading list. I'm excited to read and learn with you. Let's do it. And it was a phenomenal course. Um, and, uh, and I really um, have been making a steady pivot in my work since then into working on food studies, which is what I do here at Princeton primarily. I still teach that multi-ethnic American short stories class um, because it's a good class. But I'm um, my work, all my other teaching and my research is focused on the area of food studies and food justice. Okay, just listening to you, I see why Nadim had the experience that he had. I see, I see, I see why he was so hyped about having you on here, and I'm glad that I was like, all right, we're gonna do it, brother, because this that, this path that you just took me through. Thank you so much. I mean, I wrote so much in the, in the group Relations Center, Arizona State, understanding who I was, but not knowing who I was in relation to people of color, using literature in the classroom to help bring out or, uh, you know, to help, uh, you know, um, advance more empathy across race, identity, what we're doing in the world. How do we use it to make us better people, build empathy and understand? I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm like getting like a whole new philosophy here you know, around how to do things and just a lot of community engaged work. I, I see so much in common just with you, just from me, because you, you are in like, you apply what you learn. You, you don't just want to take it and keep it in the room and even in the academy, you want to take it out to the world. And I, and I'm really, um, I'm for, I'm humble when you say studying like food, food studies and food justice. And, and here's why I have a position about the academy that I think that we should do in the academy. I think we should study poverty. Because I think if we study poverty, maybe we'll, if we're serious about it, uh, we'll figure out ways to discontinue it, to actually dismantle it. Because there are systems that lead people to actual poverty and then keep them there, you know. And because whenever I feel us talking about, and, uh, and, and this, I mean, you, you triggered the thought, but I'm not talking about your work at all. I'm just saying like, but when we talk about justice, I, I feel like we leave this part out. You know, it's like, how do, we, how do we help people and bring them here? And I'm like, why don't you study how they got there? You know, and then let's see if we can address those things. So I'm, I know I need to take a class from you, food studies, food justice, because uh, I want to know more about why you, I, I kind of got to veer away from the questions, why you also identify as a farmer as well as, you know, so can you tell me about the farmer piece? Is, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, um, so I took, I took two giant breaks in graduate school because I wasn't clear exactly what literature was doing in the world and what me getting a degree in literary studies was going to, what, what difference that was going to make. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, during that time I learned it's really, really important for me to be applying the work that I'm doing, applying um, uh, uh, whatever's happening in the classroom, connecting it to the outside world. I already talked about that. Um, and so uh, I, so the, the farm is an extension of my work in food studies. The farm is where I get my hands dirty, literally, um, where I'm in the weeds, literally, <laughs> um, and where I get really good ideas. And I think for me, the very tactile engagement um, is super important. Um, and, uh, and it ties my work in food justice and food studies back to my roots. So uh, the reason that I was growing up in New Orleans, Minnesota, 
um, is because my grandparents had been farmers. You know, my German ancestors settled in the Midwest where they began farming. And my my grandfather sold the farm in the 60s during one of um, during one of the waves of farm consolidations. Um, but that was always a story. There were just stories growing up about, um, uh, oh, you know, uh, so-and-so, do you remember that time that, you know, Uncle Jim pushed, you know, so-and-so down the hill in the tractor? Now, if my aunts and uncles are listening, I'm sorry, I know I'm getting that story wrong. I'm just butchering it. But, <laughs> oh, and that time that Auntie Jan fell in love with the lamb and carried it everywhere like Mary, right? And so these were just, these were the stories that I grew up with. Right. Um, and my grandparents, even though they didn't have the farm when I was growing up, my grandparents had a giant garden and my grandmother canned and she um, and my grandfather um, had they had a root cellar. And my grandfather had built shelves in the root cellar that were just the exact right size for her canning jars. And my grandparents were my anchor growing up. My mom worked three jobs. Um, you know, uh, uh, my brother and sister were both quite older than me. Um, my dad left when I was three. Right. And so like, but my grandparents were the stable force. Um, and I would go to my grandparents' house and I would sit in the root cellar and I would just look at those cans. And I loved those jars, those rainbow jars on the wall of tomato jam and bread and butter pickles and dilly green beans. Um, I've come to think that those jars stood for stability and providence and planning and like everything was going to be okay when I was in that root cellar. So like the act of food preservation and growing your own food um, from a very early time in my childhood felt like a deep comfort to me. Um, and so now, so, so when I work on the farm, I have that resonance. And yet I recognize that access to, um, a, you know, a wide range of food choices is a privilege. Um, access to land ownership is a privilege. Um, and I, um, and all of the, the feels that I get from being a part of the garden cycle and preserving food and putting up my own food um, is very important to me. And it is not available um, to, um, it is not freely available. Um, and, you know, uh, when I think about food justice and racial justice, there's 98% of our farmers, and we don't have that many farmers in the United States, where it's less than 2% of our population, but of the less than 2% of the population in the United States who are farmers, who are land-owning farmers, 98% of them are white. Mm -hmm. And the history of racial exclusion in the sector of agriculture is massive, right? Um, and there's been some incredible work that's coming out to really help us to understand exclusionary practices of the USDA, um, uh, pushing black farmers off of land in the period of the great migration, the way that um, uh, during Japanese internment, um, uh, Japanese farming landowners were, um, uh, their land was taken from them uh, as a function of internment. Um, and Japanese Americans in particular had gotten a foothold in the California farm economy 
um, the uh, the um, uh, theft of land from Native Americans at the you know at um, uh, with the westward expansion. You know, there's there's a way in which a lot of us are 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 uprooted from land, um, and and that has serious consequences. And so I think a lot it has it, you know like I get a lot of mental health from being tied to this land that I get to work on as a part of as a part of the life that I live. Um, and um, and I so the class that Nadim took with me was uh, a class called American Agrarians, which is thinking a lot about um, uh, our relationship with land in the United States, why land is so powerful and um, and uh, exclusionary, discriminatory and um, and thieving that has happened around the land of the United States and how that has both, you know, both legacies around um around mental health, but also around power um, and physical health and nutrition and, um, you know, and just kind of a sensibility, a sense of place, a sense of home. And so I think a lot about that. So um, I, I think it's important that I say I'm a farmer because there aren't that many farmers and I want to open it up as a possibility to people like you can work land um, and it's good to work land and to care for land. Um, but I'm also uh, I'm also thinking a lot about uh, the privilege of working the land and why that matters to me, why I want to work the land and how, you know, not everybody wants to work land, but there are a lot of people. Um, and some of the most exciting stuff that's happening right now is happening around land justice and food justice and communities of color thinking about food sovereignty and um, and, you know, and kind of establishing um, uh, regional food systems or, you know, smaller local food systems for themselves in their own way that feels right and powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I get really excited to introduce students to those movements mm -hmm. so that they can see a wider world of possibilities. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and to kind of move the idea of farming outside of that picture of the American Gothic where it's this white Iowa, you know, farm family, you know, holding their pitchforks and saying, actually, no, like relationship with land can look at, look very different than that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's these really cool anti-capitalist movements in urban Philly and, you know, this amazing yep. mentoring happening in, at Soulfire Farm in upstate New York, New York and Detroit's yep. on fire for this stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's amazing stuff happening with indigenous seed keepers and, you know, um, and so I just, I just love all that. And I love opening that up as a possibility for students. Okay. All right. A lot was said there. I hope everybody can digest that. I feel like I, I'm going to be digesting that for a minute. Um, I did not know we had, so, so we have something really in common now. Uh, Cause I, well, I was raised by my grandparents and um, my grandfather came from a farm and I grew up Birmingham, Alabama. And we had and I garden with them, you know, up until my grandma passed. And when she passed, everything changed. It's, it's kind of like the family fell apart. But, uh, you know, but I, I saw the joy that they had growing, you know, all of the time. They grandma also had a canning room. It was be it was like right beyond the kitchen. I was sitting there and do the same thing and look at this can. Like, what is this? Like, what what's in here? And then she showed me the process and I got excited to do it with her. And, you know, I think that uh, and I and I. I mean, I, I, I talked to so, so, so much, you know, of what you said, but, 
you know, when you talked about mental health and being on the land and, you know, and my, my, my partners also talked to me about um, like my place of comfort, you know, and she says, I think I figured out where your place of comfort is. And I'm like, where is that? You go back to sitting at the kitchen table with your grandma making pancakes. I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like that. If I could, if that, that memory makes the world feel easy to deal with every time. I mean, even when I'm looking at the, uh, the um, insurrection for it, if I can just picture her walking and then give, giving her hand me a stack of pancakes. And I was a fat kid too. So, you know, no, you know, so I, you know, say that, uh, you know, she, she fed, she loved me even to somewhat maybe obesity, but anyway, that's another story. Cause you know, I lost the weight now, but uh, you know, like that bring, it, it brings me comfort. It takes me back there. But, but then everything like you, you you're able to connect so much and it in my opinion what you have demonstrated for for me proves a point that i consistently still have and here's the point sometimes when we talk to people about diversity equity and inclusion in particular i'm fascinated when people claim that they love something to value something but they can't talk about it then i think in my head why can't they talk about it Usually the people who can't talk about it is because they're not engaged in it. They're not doing anything. They're not, they're not dealing with it, which is why I tell people, I don't care what you value. I care more about what you do, actually. Let me see what you do. And you're making all these connections. And you, But what I love to us is that you're connecting it back to you. I love, I don't teach a class that I don't want to take. Like This is why <laughs> academia is suffering, because we don't have more professors who think like this. Like, come on. Because then when you're thinking about you, you're thinking about me. You're thinking about the experience that I'm going to have. So I'm trying not to get emotional up here talking to you because I'm like, where you been all my life? Uh, <laughs> we, need, we need you. We, we need you. We, we need the work that you're doing. And now I, I really understand why Nadine, just, just even more, I wish I had taken your class. I, okay. So let me try to stay professional. I'm sorry. All right. So the last couple of questions are all in the same vein. You know, you know what you have. And I really would like uh, if, and I don't want to even put words in your mouth. I don't want to I don't want to assume it's a philosophy or an understanding. I don't know. But do you think about I know the answer, you know, when you think about diversity, equity and inclusion and let me put justice and access in there, too. You know how like if if, if you could put a sentence, a statement or something just to articulate, you know, what what goes through your mind constantly, because it's probably organic and it can change and move, you know, because I can tell you're a present person, you're in the present. How would you describe that to me? Or will you describe that for me, please? I mean, I just think that it's about being a good person. <laughs> no, they can see me, they will see me jumping up about to do jumping jazz going, thank you, doc. Okay, I'm sorry, I'll cut you off. It's just like, like, I mean, I want good stuff for myself, but I want good stuff for other people. And I think that there's so much that's like, what's mine? you know, like I'm worried about losing mine. And I just think like, we don't have to worry about that. Like, we just want more good for more people. That's it. Right. I just don't think it's that complicated. Um, involves listening to people and just like hearing stories and recognizing that just because that's not your experience doesn't mean it's not real. Like, and then having empathy for that story. And like, I can say like, I had a lot of pain in my childhood and I can empathize with other people who had pain and it's a little bit different, but it's also the same. And the things that give me comfort might also give other people comfort. And it's not, 
you know, I don't believe in the vision of the world in which the pie is finite. And if I have a slice, you can't have a slice. That's, that's like, we'll just make more pie. I'm sorry. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I can't even sit still listening to you. It's hard. I can't even <laughs> sit still. And I'm, and I'm trying for real. To, and I'm trying not to get emotional because, you know, I do this work all the time, you know, and I'm engaged in this work. And what you just spoke, you just spoke the words that's in my heart. You literally said was in my heart, my mind every day. I'm like, and that's why I tell people I get so exhausted doing this work. Nigga, why you get tired? Some people don't believe that I get tired, you know, because I guess I give off the impression like I can keep going. That's a mistake. But uh, I say, because I don't understand. I get tired of trying to help people be better people. It gets tiring. I'm just like, get out of your own way. Like, <laughs> you know, if you don't like it, why are you doing it? You know, and if you don't, if you if you don't want me to have it, please tell me it's because you don't think it's a good thing for you too, not because I shouldn't have it. Because you know, and you just spoke, you just put the words to my heart, to my mind, to what I think about DEI, and I just want to thank you because the, the the other reason why I do this work is because I know that there are beautiful people out there, you know, who get this and who do it, and that's the reason why I say, oh no, I got hope. You can't steal my hope from me. You can't steal it because my hope didn't come from out high, outside. It came from in here. The things about me that have changed that makes me go, I know I still got a lot of work and growth to do, but because I have made this change, shoot, I can still do some other ones. I still got time as long as I'm breathing. So I just want to say that and not make this about me. It's just that it's you, 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 you've get, you given me life, as we said in the hip hop community. Yo, you gave me life when you said that. So I just want to say thank you. And, and, um, and I'll, uh, let's see. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. No. Everybody on Hardwood, this, <laughs> the, the challenge is when you do DEI work and then you come in contact with someone who can put words to your work, who doesn't know you. But if you look at the experiences, I feel like I know you just in this interaction. You know, if it doesn't cause you to stop and pause, you may be moving too fast. If it doesn't cause you to stop and pause, and what I'm doing is I'm allowing myself to feel what I'm feeling right now in the moment. And doing it, yes, on this podcast is all right. We can edit it out if we feel like it. But I just wanted to feel that and say thank you because it's not an, uh, it's not something that I get a lot of. And you make me think about my grandmother, which is a memory that always, uh, you know, soothes me. Sometimes, you know, pricks me, you know, but it always, and my grandfather, it, it soothes me. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, just bring this back to Dr. to Dr. Desmond. Excuse me. All right. Are there any suggestions that you would have for um, how professors in particular, in, in, in particular, or researchers, researchers, I'm sorry, you know, I want to honor that. Uh, I want to say farmers, you know, farmers, we good. Let me stick with the academy right now because we got to work in the academy. You have any suggestions and insight, because I know you have both, that could help us improve our discipline uh, as it relates to teaching students, connecting with people. I'm going to say teaching students, connecting with people and community. That's it. Suggestions through DEI that we could do to improve our discipline in the academy for students connecting with people and community? I think that we just have to be really intentional about no, like we have to start to start from the place that we know and build outward. And I think a lot of people are intimidated um, that community engaged learning, it, like it's just like breathing for me. It's I couldn't teach if it wasn't in some way tied 
to a component of engagement. Um, but that's not true for everyone who's working in the academy. And, you know, I've spent more than a decade now in the Ivy Leagues, which is crazy to say. Um, <laughs> something, it's a sentence I never thought I would ever say in my life. But um, I think there are a lot of my colleagues um, who, uh, who want to do something, who want to connect students and community and, um, and think about diversity and, you know, do something to uh, tip the scales uh, to make things feel more just and more right. But they, they don't always know where to start. And I just think like, um, sometimes we think too hard about it. Um, you just, you have to, like, you have to start with what you know and what you love, and then you share that with other people. Right. So there's, you know, there's some, there's some great stuff that's happening here at Princeton. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, some folks who know stuff about um, lead poisoning and mm -hmm. they are doing, they're, you know, using um, uh, community engaged classroom opportunities to test lead in, you know, in Trenton and help to, you know, look at solutions for remediating it. There's, um, Trenton, uh, New Jersey? In Trenton, New Jersey. Yeah, okay. so Trenton's mm -hmm. just 20 minutes from Princeton. Okay. It's a, you mm -hmm. know, in some ways, it's like a sister city. Um, gotcha. And so, uh, like, that's great, right? And it's mm -hmm. not that, I think I think of that example a lot. It's like, like a faculty member is using their expertise to be useful outside of the, uh, outside of the academy. Um, and so I think we just have to start, like, like with what we know and what we love and what we care about mm -hmm. and build from there because students are motivated more by our own passions and interests than they are by a compelling turn of phrase or, or the next new idea, right? Students, if we are passionate and invested and um, demonstrate that to students, like mm -hmm. they light up. That was one of the things that was kind of a trip about the agrarians class was we took, um, we took the students in the American Agrarians class um, to this farm, um, this Howell Living History Farm, which is here in our county. It's a county park that is modeling a farm from the early 1900s. And we okay. took them for maple syrup tapping. And when I'm arranging this farm, this tour, right, with Howell Living History Farm, they're like, oh, well, we have all kinds of elementary kids who come all the time, but I don't think we've ever hosted a college. Okay. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, let's do it anyways. And this farm has draft horses that pull the maple, that pull the, you know, you dump the the, the tap, the syrup, or, or you dump the sap in these syrup buckets and then the horses these big Belgium draft horses, they pull it on a cart to the sugar shack. And so I was out there with my students and I, I mean, I just love being on a farm. Right. And so there's like a goose walking with us and then there's the horses. And then we come to the sheep pasture and we're picking the buckets off of their, you know, their, their, their taps and dumping them into, and I am just beaming, right? I'm giddy. Um, I can't get enough of it, like petting the horses and being outside with these students. And like, they loved it. They ate it up. They got to see me in my element, right? I was shared a part of myself. And what they saw there was like, whether or not being in the cold was a joy for them, 
they saw it was a joy for me. And and those of those, those who loved it were able to love it all the more because as the leader of the class, I was allowing myself to love it. And I just think like, we need to like, uh, I tell my students, let me think, I tell them like, you have to figure out where your passion aligns with your skills, uh, aligns with something that's useful in the world. And you're looking when you're thinking about what you want to do with the rest of your life, you're looking for things that sit at that nexus of those three things. And like in that moment, my students got to see that my passion aligned with, um, with my skills and the thing that I think is useful and reconnecting people to land um, and getting them to care about a patch of earth um, uh, so that we can be better stewards um, is something I'm really excited about. And in that moment, they were like, and you can do that, you know, like, and that was a, a class that was thinking about land and racial justice um, and, uh, you know, and good stewardship, basically. And it was a group mm-hmm. of diverse students, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, mm-hmm. taking them to do maple syrup tapping doesn't, on the surface, seem like a DEI activity. But really, it is, it in is. fact. And it I is. loved it. And they love mm-hmm. to see that I love it. Mm-hmm. You made me think about, I, I just I, just something from the past, at, uh, from my past when I was well, teaching now, what am I talking about? But I taught a diversity and environmental justice class when I was at NC State uh, before I came to Yale. And it would be majority, I had, I had majority white students in the class. Okay, and so uh, like 95%. Now, I'll admit, the way we put the class together, the students would get six graduation credits. So they would get like a, a diversity credit. I forgot the other one. So I knew having this class, I was probably going to get kind of a, you know, somewhat of a homogenous population. But I was like, we're still, but I don't assume that everyone is homogenous and we're still going to learn a lot more about one another. And uh, one of the big trips that we would take is we would go to a community garden that's in a black neighborhood. And, you know, I remember the, I taught the class five times. Yeah, before I left five times. The third time I taught the class, that maybe was the best class. Yeah, yeah. We took them to that farm, Tessa. And you should have seen it. Both populations were doing the same thing. The black folk were looking at us on the bus like, and the white folks were looking at them like, like, yo, yo. And um, there was a couple of things that I had to do, you know, myself, you know, just to kind of get to address it, I had to address the students as well as the community. And I kind of became, I guess, somewhat like a mediator in the middle, you know, because I was like, hey, you know what we're here for? And you knew we were coming. And then we had to talk about how we gr- greeted each other. And then what, but what switched up was after that, the students on their own could just keep going. It, they, they didn't need me anymore. You know, it was like, which was good. Like, that was the point. It was like, yeah. So then now people don't feel funny seeing a student from NC State. And students from NC State don't feel funny seeing people from the community. They're more, now people are more upset that we don't see more of each other. You know, that's how it was before I left. And just hearing you tell that just, you just made me think about, I think, I think I did a good thing back then. I used to wonder like, oh man, I'm bringing these students out here. Lord, they're going to say something bad about me. They're going to think I'm trying to set them up. They think I'm trying to change them, which I wasn't. But I was trying to give them some of what they wanted. They said they wanted to learn about what was going on in the community and how people were impacted by, you know, you know, by government, by decisions that were being made. And I said, well, let's go and let's see. And then let's see how those same people who may be negatively impacted are trying to rectify the, their own issues right now without the help, you know, of like, you know, of government or even organized, you know, movements. 
and they got to see it. And I just think that at some point along the way, they saw one another's hearts in a way, I think like, oh, you're trying to do what you're doing. I'm going to school to try to do what you're doing. Let's connect. So I just want to say thank you for for being a living example, because I think that that's what we need more of are people who are living examples of this work and you're definitely doing it. Um, I'm, I'm looking at our time and I want to honor your time. And the truth is you've actually answered every question for real. Uh, just in talking to me, this this has been so, yeah, yeah. It, this this has been a great conversation. Okay, I won't say interview. This has been a great conversation because I feel like as a professor, I've learned a lot from you. As a researcher, you know, I'm so endeared by how you do what you do. As a diversity professional, I am so excited of how aware you are, how intentional you are, and just how uh, and just how humble you are. And then just as a person, I'm just glad to meet you and uh, have you on this podcast because this, this is something that the, the, it's good to have an episode that you realize, oh, you just got something that you were missing. You know, so I just want to thank you for filling in a gap for us of, uh, you know, of application, of generosity, authenticity and uh, being willing to go back to your roots. Um, I just like to ask, uh, you know, based on what you think that we're about, is there anything that I didn't ask you that, that you'd like to share? you know, or any last comments, you know, or last words of wisdom that, that you'd like to grace us or just grace me with, you know, because I am now a fan. So I'm, I'm, I'm listening and watching. Thanks, Thomas. Um, uh, I think when I was just listening to you talk, I think it's really important to say something about dissonance and discomfort in learning. And so it sounds like, you know, when you brought these two groups together, there was an initial discomfort, not mm -hmm. really sure how to interact with each other, how to be together. And I think it's really important that, um, that we recognize that, that we don't just try to make everything feel great right away, right? Mm -hmm. Like sitting in discomfort or moments of dissonance are really powerful, right? Like I remember going to the mall in the Twin Cities, school, school clothes shopping and seeing the first African-American that I ever saw in person in my life. And like, that was an important learning moment. And I don't know what I learned in that moment, but I've come back to it many times to think, uh, like I grew up in a world where that was possible, like where I was not surrounded by people who look different than me. And that's an important learning node. And when I went, to my master's program. And I was the only white person with these, you know, five black women. I had mm -hmm. uncomfortable moments there. Not, mm -hmm. they weren't all uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. I learned so much um, mm -hmm. from being in a, being in a space that made, that had a little bit of dissonance. Um, uh, I just, this season learned to snowboard my family is really into skiing so that there uh, I've been I've been skiing for five years trying and I don't really like it and so this this fall or this winter I decided I'm gonna try to snowboard because those boots are more comfortable and mm -hmm. I fell all over the place but honestly like I learned so much about the process of learning because I was uncomfortable from my falling, right? Like, and I just allowed myself to be in a space where I didn't feel expert. And I think that those of us in the academy, we get to 
be feel expert in so many spaces that we don't open ourselves up to learning moments and discomfort. And we want our students to enjoy experiences. So we also don't open them up to learning moments and discomfort and dissonance. But in the moments of dissonance, especially when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, so many of um, the students who, you know, you were talking about, like, the academy is always saying, like, let's bring more people here. Well, the, the people who we want to bring here to enhance diversity, equity, and inclusion are often coming and having a, an experience of great dissonance when they get here. And in order for us to have empathy, we should also put ourselves in places where we experience that discomfort. And like, sometimes we just want to make that discomfort go away. But mm -hmm. I think we don't always need to do that. We can lean into it a little bit and learn from it mm -hmm. and then ultimately make a way for everybody to feel a little bit better. Um, but that we don't just move through it, that we don't avoid it and, uh, and, and move through it. Sometimes when we feel expert in something, it just makes us, it's so comfortable. It's so nice mm -hmm. to feel like you're competent and in control. Um, but I think it's important for all of us to move in the world um, in ways that open us up for discomfort, sometimes even mm -hmm. failure or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or saying the wrong thing and then learning from that, you know, like I, you know, I think that's important and I do, I, yeah, I could say more, but I think I'll stop mm -hmm. there. Look, we may need to do a part two. Um, and I hope that you would agree to that because I know the Dean, Nadim would like that, would love that. And I would too. I really do. I want to say thank you because there's so much more that I I want to talk to you some more. I need. I, I want to learn from you know. Continue to learn from you, and um and and I and I hope that all of our listeners who have listened uh, to to this episode that you will. Uh, I, there's so much for you to take away. Um, so much. I I I can't. I don't even want to take too much time to just run through all of it because there's too much for you to take away. But for me, one thing is being conscious of self being conscious of the impact you're having on other people to care about that. And then this is all the last things that you just said to give yourself a chance to walk, to get away from the comfort of the, of being an expert and to allow yourself to, to not know, you know, and then, uh, um, and, and, and to put yourself in that environment will probably help you really empathize with other people who don't know or who are coming into, into the space. I just, you know, Whoever's listening to this, if you want to create a diversity, equity, inclusion major, I think you just got all of the blueprint listening about the Desmond. I think I just did. If I really wanted to go start a program, I really can. Thank you, Doc, for your brilliance and just for just being open with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas, for having me on. Thank you for all the work that you're doing at Yale and in all the other spaces that you walk and that you that you are who you are. So thank you so much for inviting me. And thanks to Nadim for thinking of me. I'm honored. The Hardwood Podcast is a production of the Yale School of the Environment in New Haven, Connecticut. Our producer is Nadine Damien, a joint degree master's student between the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, pursuing degrees in environmental management and international and development economics. I am Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, and we'll see you next time.